Welcome to On The Rise Podcast with your hosts, Sam and Evan. Hello and welcome to On The Rise Podcast. My name is Sam Donsig alongside my co-host Evan Brown. Before we get started, On The Rise Podcast is now streaming on Midtown Radio, Dossier, Saturdays at 10 a.m. Our topics for today's episode are the MLB and MLBPA finally agreeing on a 60-game season. Uh, the New York Jets are hoping to keep star Jamal Adams despite him requesting a trade. 16 out of a total of 302 NBA players have tested positive after being tested for COVID-19. And our overview of the upcoming draft lottery part one for the NHL. Alrighty. Let's begin in the NBA because some breaking news over there is as for a total of six, so yeah, 16 of a total of 302 NBA players have tested positive uh, for COVID-19 after being tested on the 23rd. So how is this going to affect the NBA restart? Because in my mind, like we talked about last week with other leagues, with the with baseball and with hockey, with these players getting the virus, it seems that having 16 players, it doesn't matter even if they're not all the same team, but let's, let's say three or four per team. That's three or four teams that's missing, four teams exactly, let's say, Robert Joe, that are missing stars. And the big thing is, is that it really affects the restart in minds of that our players really safe in Orlando in this big bubble because those 16 players are not going to Orlando. They're going to self quarantine. They're going to self-isolate. They're going to stay away. But it's not, it's unaware to see who other, what other players have possibly contracted the virus, maybe from other players as well. Um, since being tested, possibly it could be, and it, it, it could be something that's going to be interesting. What are your thoughts there? I think it's going to have a little bit of an effect, and I think Adam's, uh, or, uh, yeah, Adam Silver uh, was saying that there is a bit of a growing concern, but they're not really <clears throat> too worried about uh, it affecting the NBA restart. The, the problem with 16 players is, yes, it is a small number. It is a very small percentage of the 302 coming in, but the problems there include not only is this virus very uh, – contagious it travels very quickly and uh, infects a lot of different people so that 16 could easily turn into who knows how many in a single day depending on how it, well obviously they are self-isolated now but if they didn't te- do those testing obviously that would have changed things uh and hopefully they can get these guys enough time to quarantine make sure they are covid free and then get them back on the court because not a lot of teams are going to want to be missing some of these players because I know there's a lot of reports coming out. I think uh, Nikola Jokic, Derek Jones Jr., were just a few of the ones that were tested positive, uh, mm-hmm. reported anyways. I think Alex Len was there as well, but Alex Len, is, Alex Len isn't as important to the teams. But, um, I mean, they're doing all they can. They released, like, I think they did release some form of list of like all the different tests and stuff like they're doing. I, I don't know if that was them or the MLB, but there was like a, one of the leagues gave an insight as to like all the different testing there's doing, they're doing mm-hmm. for players. And I mean, it is, uh, it is going to be tough for them to restart, especially with Florida's current climate uh, where they are, there are thousands of cases a day at this point. There are, I think they had, I think they set the record for most cases in a day by a mm-hmm. state, uh, over the past couple of days, it's been it's been growing exponentially. It's not looking great there, but with the bubble that they're creating, uh, if they can lock it down as best as that, like if they can fully lock it down, which I think they will be able to, because I think I saw today they're going to be using uh, law enforcement to uh, 
keep a lot of the uh, players inside the bubble, uh, as well as all the staff and stuff like that. Um, and I think as long as they can, can contain everybody and make sure everybody stays safe once they've tested everybody and made sure everybody is negative multiple times throughout their stay, I think the NBA will be able to restart despite everything going on around them in Florida. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if uh, there is an outbreak. And obviously, I think uh, Adam Silver also said that if there was an outbreak, they would not like just can, like outbreak within the facility. They wouldn't mm-hmm. continue things. They would make sure yeah. everybody player safety comes first, obviously. And Adam Silver was making sure people knew that there, like, <clears throat> yes, it's all well and good. The NBA is coming back, but if things were to go awry, they're not just going to force players to go back out there, uh, game in, game out kind of thing. They're going to make sure everybody is safe and because you never know with these types of things, this type of virus, because yes, they are, yes, they could heal really quickly, but for some people, they might not recover fully at all. For some people, it still like might damage their lungs a little bit. And that can be tough for a player's career, especially an athlete when they're, running down the court a couple times uh, a bunch of times every game right so i mean it's definitely going to be a little bit of a risk for the teams going back especially now that they have well less so now that they've made sure that they've found all 16 cases that could have been there if that makes any sense like it's a good thing they've found them out now rather than once they had got the players all there for yeah. example but mm-hmm. I think there still is a technical risk to bringing these uh, players here. And I think the fact that these numbers have come out uh, is a bit of a good sign. But then again, who knows, right? There could be things. This number 16 could be them even trying to downplay it. We don't know the full story, obviously, as uh, as the fans. We're just going off of what the media is telling us. And the NBA could, in theory to lessen concerns about uh, fans thinking that it might not be safe for players, in theory could reduce the number a little bit just to, you know, make it seem like a bit of a better situation. Obviously, I'm not accusing them of anything like that, but who knows, right? Yeah, I would definitely agree because I think with anything, especially anywhere with regarding the numbers for COVID-19, there's always been a lot of speculation of, how accurate those numbers are, especially I'll give you a perfect example. Actually, I'm going to put out Donald Trump in here, but Donald Trump said the other day saying that the reason why they have so many number of high cases because they're testing so many people. So if they test fewer people, fewer cases will come out. It was like, it just did like, I was like, I was be like hold of knowledge or that, that logic, what he just put out, but I'm just all in the, the grand scheme of the point that I'm making is that the NBA could easily be downplaying the number. We could easily have more than 16 of a total of 302 NBA players. 16 is very high, considering most leagues are around eight or nine. Like, I think it was the Phillies had five plus three, and the Blue Jays had a few other players as well that recently this week broke out. Um, so it's interesting to expect that you have a 16 as a total, and it could totally be a downplay. Um, and I think it's going to be – it's definitely going to affect the NBA restart. Um, more precautions, more definitely more precautions will be taken. So that kind of leads me to my second question of – what implementations need to be made for the player safeties? Because they've talked about the rings and they've talked about um, the bands and stuff to kind of, but honestly, I think for their safety, they should make sense. Everybody needs to wear a mask despite them being in a bubble. And yes, they're all in a bubble, but 
it's better to be safe than sorry because if one person comes in who's contracted it from the out from the outside of the bubble like just accidentally not even without not even realizing before they go into the bubble and he brings it in a mask yes won't fully predict but it will it will reduce the chance of another player getting it either if they're talking within each other um either yeah they're practicing and stuff so and the question is what kind of implementations need in your mind need to be made for the player's safety do you think that masks should be mandatory despite them being all in a bubble and the fact that the bubble method is that everyone in the bubble is technically safe and free of covid what are your thoughts there i mean obviously there is a risk with them being unmasked and i think the nba is doing all of uh, every as much as it can uh, do within its power to uh, keep the players as, uh, as safe as possible as to having them uh, being mandatory for them to wear a mask, I think most of the players will probably wear masks anyways, just because yeah. a lot of them will prefer to be on the safe side. But I don't think the NBA should fully make it mandatory because, yes, you are in a bubble. Yes, it would be considered safe. But can trying to control that many people to mandatory wear a mask all the time, like are you going to have like people being uh, like fined or something like that? If they're like seeing whether they're masked all the time, are you like, cause in the, in the long run, while yes, you do have them in a bubble and yes, you can have them wearing a mask all the time, uh, all the time when they're on the court, they're going to be masked off any, like they're not going to have yeah. a mask on on the court anyways. So that kind of almost defeats the purpose in a sense. So I feel like it would be, I think the players that will want to wear a mask will wear a mask, but I don't think it should mm -hmm. be mandatory because by the time they get on the court, it's kind of hard to keep them socially distanced on the court anyways. So yeah. I feel like it, it shouldn't be mandatory, but I feel like some player, I, I feel like most players will opt to that option anyways, uh, depending on who it is, obviously. Yeah. And kind of like my last thought here like, uh, to wrap it up is that should the NBA, and I, you kind of mentioned a little bit, but should the NBA even restart at all with this, this new number of total of uh, 16 players? Now, 16 is a small number of the 302 that are entering, but that still is a number, 16 cases is the highest in any sport that we've seen of the tested positive cases. So should the NBA even restart at all? Like, I want to get your thoughts, and then I, I kind of will give mine and go from there. See. It's tough because there are some uh, some people on social media are saying like, oh, uh, uh, the only reason they're actually restarting is because the NBA is in it for the money. They want all the TV deals. They don't care about player safety, which I totally disagree with. I think they are completely for the player safety. And I don't think, I mean, uh, I was actually listening to a podcast uh, and one of the hosts was saying that yes they do care about money that's the whole point like they're obviously care about money any league is going to be caring about money right now but yeah. they are taking the time to put the player safety before that in a sense so they'll be fine with getting all the money from the tv deals and stuff like that but they're going to be using that money to make sure that player safety is their number one priority and mm -hmm. i know the nba is going to do everything in its power to restart and with the climate in florida right now it would be uh pretty risky well not pretty risky but like there is some amount of risk with them all trying to quarantine in florida um but i do think i do think the nba should uh restart i think they are going to restart i would in in retrospect i think the nba would have wanted to move the location of it no matter uh, but because of how committed they are right now and because of uh all the timing and stuff like that i think they're going to stick with orlando no matter what they're going to stick with disney world 
because they have all the plans put in place. And I think that it will restart uh, at the end of July. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of mixed about this because I would say I feel right now if they do choose Florida, it's it's considered, despite them being in a bubble and despite them being in like Disney World and Orlando, I still think that they're being that Florida is a hotspot for COVID-19 right now. And so I don't feel that like the world needs sport. And never could say if we, if the NBA doesn't restart, then we have to wait for baseball to hopefully restart. And that's, and that's about it. And there's a lot of NBA fans that are wanting this. So in my mind, I think with everything that's going on and if new cases arise with the six, I don't think the NBA should restart. And I know it's going to come off as controversial, you know, because people want to play and stuff, but there's a growing concern for reason because even in any state in the United States as well, there's a large number of cases in Florida as well. So if you have these large number of cases and yes, they're in a bubble and yes, they're going to be technically safe, but it's not hundred percent sure because you don't know who's going to come into that. But like, yes, you, you've tested every player and yes, 16 have come off positive and they're probably going to be self-isolated, but you're still not hundred percent sure with those numbers. And we're not even sure if those numbers are completely accurate. They could be a little bit buffered. So in my mind, I don't think the NBA should even respond. I, I would miss, I'm going to miss basketball, but it's on a greater, grander scheme of protecting players. And you're, like the point about, like, I know some people saying, oh, the NBA only cares about money. Of course the NBA cares about money. It is a league. It is like the, the NBA does not like, it, you know, it's about for the fans. No, it's for the money really. And for the fans, but for the players mostly, that's why they have these organizations that are going to help. So in my mind, I think the NBA shouldn't restart. Um, I think it's better for the player safety for the players. And yes, the fact that only 16 of the three two have a, a small number have only been, have only tested positive. There's still leads a large number of players to still go in there and still play but I still think there's being in Florida and being where they are has a chance. In my mind, the NBA should not restart, just kind of cancel it because with everything that's coming up between the NBA and sports as well, it can be very dangerous to have these league restarts because we're not sure if an outbreak does happen, then the league will just completely shut down and it won't look good for Adam Silver and it won't look good for the NBA. Alrighty, that wraps up our NBA discussion regarding the uh, 16 of the total of 302 NBA players testing positive for COVID-19 after being tested on the 23rd. Now moving on over into the NHL and of course the draft lottery part uh, to our draft lottery part one overview. So right, Ottawa has a combined 25% chance, 25% chance to at the first overall pick heading into heading into the draft due to them having San Jose's first round pick as well as their own. Should the um, should the placeholder teams tank or tanks? Should they tank? That's my so, question yeah. to you. Basically, the draft lottery part one. The reason it's whole part, <clears throat> excuse me. The reason it's whole part one is because it's very confusing. But basically, part one that's going down is it's going to be all the teams that have their picks as well as all the teams that haven't made the uh, current playoff format that they've set up uh, with the twenty four teams, and then. I think it's eight placeholder spots for all the teams that uh, will eventually lose in the uh, opening rounds of the playoffs once the, once uh, the NHL returns. And basically Mm -hmm. the second part of that lottery will be deciding which uh, will be the like placeholder teams deciding. So when the eight teams are eliminated, 
those eight teams will be put into the spots based off of a whole a whole separate other lottery. But basically tonight uh, is the uh, chance for the draft lottery and the Ottawa Senators, uh, as you mentioned, have a, technically a 25% uh, combined chance. Realistically, that's not entirely accurate because of how statistics work, but Technically, they do have a 25% chance because not they have 12.5% uh, chance with their own uh, first-round pick that is projected to go first overall because they were one of the worst teams in the league this year uh, uh, down there with Detroit, as well as San Jose, who did not have a great year this year as well, who, uh, also, uh, who also has technically a 12.5% chance of making the playoffs. So, or 12.5% chance at the number one overall pick. So, Technically, it is possible for the Sens to have the first and second overall pick, but also it's technically possible for them to have the fourth and fifth overall pick. So it'll be very interesting. And one of the things I was, uh, saw on Twitter, uh, they were talking about maximum chaos scenarios where it's just crazy outlandish scenarios that would really make NHL media have a field day uh, when they talk about uh, chaos scenarios. And one of them was uh, where three placeholder teams that technically could have uh, uh, that technically have a chance at the uh, number one overall pick. I'll get the I'll get the three lottery picks somehow, even though it's very very unlikely. So then, not only does Detroit, the Senators, uh, the Kings, and the other teams that are up there waiting for their draft picks, not only do they not get the top three, uh, not get one of the top three spots, but then we now have to wait for the other three teams to be determined based off of how. Uh, they do in the round robin. And that's why I, I kind of uh, wanted to talk about the questions of should placeholder teams tank? And because if theoretically a placeholder team does get into the lottery, say they get, a, say they get the second overall pick somehow, some way, the, the lottery just works out in their favor. That mm. could mean that easily if the Leafs lose to the Blue Jackets they have a chance at it now if the Penguins lose to the Canadians mm -hmm. they have a chance at it now heck even the Oilers with Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid could technically have a shot at the first overall pick if they decide to tank which is why another chaos scenario would be the whole placeholder teams winning the lottery because that brings up a whole new aspect of tanking obviously because teams that Teams could go into the um, qualifying rounds, whether that be Toronto versus Columbus, Pittsburgh versus Canadians, like I was saying, and basically just tank because they know they could have a chance at one of those lottery picks um, based off of how the draft lottery falls. And that's going to be dependent, I think, on if placeholder teams get into the uh, get into the lottery. If one of those placeholder spots gets one of the top three picks, I think some teams will intentionally try to tank the first uh, the first round and try to hope that the lottery falls in their favor where they get one of those lottery picks. And it would be interesting to see if somehow a placeholder team got the first pick and then you see next year uh, Lafreniere play with Austin Matthews, Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid. It would be pretty pretty interesting to see if some teams take it that way. I'm not saying they should, and I'm not saying they will. But I just think that would be kind of interesting. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it's an interesting, the whole idea of tanking, because a lot of leagues are against it, because the whole thing about tanking is to get the best overall pick. And if, and if the Leafs decide to tank to get uh, Lafreniere or another star player, possibly, 
it would be interesting, but I don't like, it's, it's hard to tell because it's like, you can tank if you want, but then it's also going to look bad on you because you're just really trying to get a star to like rebuild your team. So it'd be interesting to see the fact that the possibly like a crazy scenario where the Penguins who have Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Melkin, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, I, I saw the Instagram post that the TSN product, I can't remember the, maybe it was Phil Kessel or something like, I can't really remember. Maybe it was Phil Kessel was in the middle. Plus um, possibly having left hand year or the Oilers having a crazy scenario where they have a crazy young three like, honestly, I think if Lafreniere landed on the Oilers, the Oilers would just become OP. Like, it would be over. Like, honestly, <laughs> it would be in the, in the, the NHL would be nuts. The Western Conference would be scared to go up against that three. It would be, it would be something yeah. else. Those, those three players going, um, going, being on one team. So, in my mind, I don't think placeholder teams should tank because, yes, you have a great chance of, you know, getting a star player and, but in some of these players, like some of these teams' eyes, that we have a chance to go win another, win a Stanley Cup. And in the eyes of the Penguins, we can win another one. In the Oilers, you can go win a first Stanley Cup. So in my mind, you have to go chase the passion of chasing the legacy of getting a Stanley Cup ring now during this interesting, weird format that the, the NHL has decided upon um, for the foreseeable future than rather to tank and wait for next year. Because yeah. from what I've seen, tanking always doesn't work. I'm not saying Lafreniere is going to be a bad player, but it's going to take a year for him to develop. So most likely you're going to have a year of him to be developing, get his feet under him in the NHL and stuff. Cause it's a big change. Like obviously if he do, if he does go to the Oilers, um, Drysaddle and McDavid will be able to help him with that move, but I still think they're still a few years out. So it's like you have a chance this year to have a re- like they have a really good team in the Oilers. So in my mind, if they have a chance to go win the Stanley Cup this year, they should not tank because they have the chance to go chase a legacy, a re- uh, like a, a Stanley Cup, which is much better on a legacy resume in my mind, getting into the Hall of Fame than just tanking to get one good player. Now, you could say tanking could lead to multiple like multiple Stanley Cups because if the Oilers do get them or the Penguins get them or the Toronto Maple Leafs get them. So it's a really tough toss-up to decide if the placeholder teams should tank, but in my mind, they should not because they have a better chance possibly still at getting a legacy, a piece of legacy put onto their resume, you could say the hall of fame exactly and like um obviously that is all dependent on what happens in this part one of the lottery if none of the placeholder teams get a lottery pick which is the technically technical most likely scenario then Hmm. that changes team strategies entirely then it will be full out them pushing for a top playoff spot Mm -hmm. but then if a placeholder team does get into the lottery that's when the things start to get janky and yeah um like yes there is a whole idea of tanking but at the same time what if a team just gets upset? What if the Montreal Canadiens end up, the 12th seeded Montreal Canadiens end up taking out the Penguins in the first round? Now yeah. the Penguins are like, well, we didn't tank, but it's still a pretty nice consolation prize in the fact that yeah. we could have a chance. It's still not likely because then you have to go through a second lottery process and hope that you get that right. pick. But at the same time, it would be, it, it kind of gives teams something to fall back onto if the lottery uh, if the if the ping pong balls bounce the right way and the lottery works out in, the fi- in their favor depending on if a placeholder team gets in or who knows maybe the Sens just get the top two picks and then the ultimate chaos scenario is done and the senators are going to be looking mighty fine heading into the next few seasons uh, uh to build upon their young core uh, who knows yeah. and it, 
it really adds to the fact that this this draft lottery this lottery scenario that the NHL has put together uh, along with this playoff format really changes uh, the perspective and strategies of different teams in the league. And it's going to be very interesting to see over the next month or so when not only the lotteries are done, but also um, when the qualifying rounds happen and when the qualifying rounds finish up. It'll be interesting to see how teams strategize and if they do decide to tank drastically or if they do try to go a bit riskier and try to upset a team. Like it, it'll, it'll all depend on the strategies of teams. And I'm very excited for when hockey gets back. Alrighty, that wraps up our NHL discussion regarding our draft lottery part one overview. Moving on over to some other news in the MLB. The MLB and the MLB Players Association have finally, after long-awaited discussions back and forth, have agreed to a 60-game season with training camps uh, opening July 3rd. So the question is, is 60 games enough, and do we like it as a possibility for a season? That's my question to you. So this is my thing with 60 games and it's, it's, it's good because they finally agreed and everybody uh, is happy that they finally am start are starting to make progress. They're still trying to figure out. Uh, I think they're still trying to work out uh, the like full logistics of where they're going to have teams because they don't want people going across the border and Toronto right. uh, does still want to play games at the Rogers center. So there's a bunch of different things working out the, uh, that front, but they have the safety done. Uh, they've gotten all their safety measures put in, uh, uh, planned out and are ready to put in place. They have the game set. Uh, they have dates set. And it's all finally coming together. And it's good because it means the MLB will happen this season, most likely. And they'll probably still have to figure out where some Florida teams end up playing because of the current hotspot down there. But they, once they find, uh, figure out those finer details, everything will be good. The problem with 60 games, though, in my mind, is it really changes the whole aspect of the season because uh, I think I think it was the score put out a, st- uh, a stat that basically took last season and put the put the season into the first 60 games. And the World Series winning Washington Nationals last year wouldn't have made the playoffs in the first 60 games. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were last in their division going uh, 60 games in the last season. And yeah. I think it, it was something great. I think like the Royals would have made the playoffs and there was a couple other weird ones in there just because teams can get off to a bad start. I mean, there are many cases where some of the teams just barely speak into the playoffs, but then they instantly vault, uh, uh, vault and do well in the playoffs. Like we saw with the nationals last season. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really changes the, uh, changes the pace of the game because a regular hundred, a regular 162 game season, is a lot different than a, a Titan 60-game season, in my opinion. And it will really change the face of the MLB because if a team gets off to a good start, say they have a good stretch of, I don't know, 20 games, that's two-thirds of the season right there. Or a third of the, third well, of the yeah, season. Yeah, one-third of the season. Uh, so if you go, say, 15-5 and five in your first 20 games, you're pretty much set for the rest of the way. You're pretty much already guaranteed you're going to be in the top half of the league, basically, depending on how things shake out. And that could instantly put you into contention. And one of the things I was actually just reading was an article on the score. I can't remember who put it out, but um, they're talking about underrated bets to win the World Series. Because right now, 
the Dodgers, Yankees, and Astros are still like the top three to win. But what they're saying was is because most games are going to be played in division. So you're just going to, uh, whatever, like the Blue Jays will play most of their games against the Yankees and the Red Sox and uh, Orioles and the Rays. But also geographically, like the NL division, they're going to play some interleague games based off of like where they are. Mm-hmm. So like the Jays would play uh, the Marlins because they're on the east side of the uh, United States and stuff like that. Right. Um, and they were basically talking about underrated bets to win the, uh, that could have a shot to win the World Series. And they brought up a really good point with a team like the Oakland Athletics, who may be a sort of bubble team to make the playoffs in a 162-game season, but now it means they're playing most of their games against the Kansas City Royals the Detroit, and the Detroit Tigers, who are not going to be that great this season, no matter what. They have good futures, but they're not going to be that great this season. So, uh, mm. I, th- I think it was actually the Chicago White Sox, not the Oakland Athletics, now that I think about it. Either way, they're basically saying that teams that would be playing in bad divisions, basically, would have a better shot of making the playoffs because if most of your games are against bad teams, that instantly puts you in a better contention to have a much better season on paper. Uh, like, I believe it's the NL Central, I want to say. That is, I, I can't remember if it's NL Central or NL West that they were also saying was, like, supposed to be one of the weakest divisions this year. And easily any one of those teams, because they're playing each other so much, could run away with it, right? So that's, that's the one thing I have. That's the one problem I have with the 60-game season is so much could change in 60 games. Or so much could change in 60 games and the whole seat like – Teams could go on a heater. Teams could go on a cold streak. Like, it really – it doesn't give a big enough sample size, in my opinion, to allow teams into the playoffs. Obviously, they will, obviously will get into the playoffs. But it's going to be interesting to see how the MLB sort of, like, changes in a 60-game season. What are your thoughts? I kind of disagree with you because I think that having – yes, having a big 162-game season is great for baseball because it allows teams to start off rough and then – work their way back up even in the NHL where there's only 82 games teams can kind of have a rough start and then work their way up but the thing about a 60 game season um with these training camps as well is that every game is going to matter so much and it's going to competitive it's going to be close hopefully and teams are going to want to win because having one or like actually 100 less 102 less games less on the seat left in the season than compared to last year, every game is going to count. Every game is going to matter. Every inning is going to matter because it makes it so much competitive. So I like the 60 games in the aspect of, the, in the aspect of it's going to be super competitive because the players will want to really want to win and stuff because they can't. They know they can't get off to bad starts because if they go out, let's say, I don't know, let's say through 20 games, they go 7-13 and 13. in 162 games or let's – yeah. Out of that, now if you t- multiply that up to a 162 game season, let's say they go like I don't know 21 and like 36 or something like that, or 39, that might be a little bit rougher sketch. But in a 60 game season, you won't be able to recover from a little bit of a skid like that. So teams are going to want to focus, they're going to want to play hard, and it's going to make baseball competitive. Not saying baseball was not competitive before, but I'm saying it's going to make it more competitive. It's going to make it more interesting. More people are going to watch it. With everything that's going on, people are definitely going to watch the MLB as it comes back. I'm, I'm going to be super excited. So I like the 60 games in the aspect of making it, um, I'd say, entertainable, entertainable, 
and also really competitive in the aspect between the players and uh, between the, between the players with the, amongst each other. That's the one from the, the one problem I have though with it being competitive, it's going to be more exciting for baseball, obviously. Um, but well, not that I'm disappointed in, but the MLB is going to be disappointed as a whole because the best part of having a 60 game season is that every game is going to feel like a playoff game between the two teams, obviously, but teams are going to be missing the playoff atmosphere. When a team, when games are important like that, you see the fans show up and you see the stadiums are like the stadiums are buzzing with excitement. Right. Mm -hmm. And that I feel like is going to take away a bit from the competitive because uh, competitive side of things because yes there yes every game means more but now you don't have that fan support it's going to be in quiet stadiums right uh, teams are used to uh, well except for the Tampa Bay Rays but most teams are used to be used to playing in very loud packed stadiums and they're used to having a that ton was, of support. That was, that was funny. It was a bit of a low blow but, the, but it's yeah, fair. Yeah, it was it was good Either it was way, fair. Teams are used to having a ton of people in the stands and they're used to having loud crowds crowds that are supporting them and if there, if nobody's in the stands supporting them, it's not going to feel exactly like a playoff game every every game, because that's what a sixty two sixty game season would feel like. Uh, in normal circumstances, sixty games would, uh, if it's just a sixty game season, every game would feel like a playoff game for teams uh, when they're, when they're going up against tough matchups, and because they have that fan support around them. But without the fan support, it's going to be a bit. It's it's going to draw away from their inspiration to play the game if that makes any sense yes games are going to mean more but they're losing that inspiration that having the support of 40,000 fans gives them every game right so I mean 60 games is the best they can if, if it's the best they can they could have done then I'm fine with that it means baseball's coming back yippee but yeah in the grand scheme of things 60 games is kind of a tough a tough mark of games to be playing for this season I'm glad it's getting restarted and I'm glad that they could finally come to an agreement, but in the long run, 60 games isn't the way I would have liked to have had it. Yeah, no, I would agree. It's, it's, it's interesting. Like the whole thing with a lot of the, a lot of the players probably wanted a bit of a, maybe a longer season with obviously uh, the prorated salaries, which I think they've agreed on, but the 60 game season is good in my aspect because it does Yes, you're losing the fan aspect. Of course, there's not going to be fans with the number of cases and stuff. And with the 60-game season, games are going to be, yes, they don't won't, won't feel the same if fans were in there and it was a 60-game season. But it's the best that they could do. And I think, like, I think anybody, any baseball fan, like you said as well, like yourself, you're happy that baseball is back. You're happy that they've agreed. Because there was even, I remember a week ago, there was concern that the MLB wasn't going to come to an agreement with the MLBPA. And there couldn't be, and there wasn't, a, there was a slight possibility that the MLB would be canceled for 2020, which would absolutely suck because it's just one less sport to watch on TV. So I can see where you're coming from, but I also see where I'm kind of making my points and stuff. And I still like the, 60, yeah, obviously, 60 games because it does make it competitive, even without fans there to support them, per se. Alrighty, that wraps up our MLB dis discussion regarding the MLB and the MLBPA finally agreeing on a, to a 60-game season, season with training camps to open July 3rd. Moving on over into our last story of the day regarding Jamal Adams and his sweepstakes of where he is going to land. So the New York Jets reportedly are hoping to keep star Jamal Adams despite him requesting a trade. He also said earlier this week when asked by a fan that he is trying to land with the Dallas Cowboys. 
So the question I pose to you, should Jamal stay or go? It's tough because the Jets obviously are interested in keeping him. They want to keep as much talent as they can going into the – because the Jets are looking in uh, after this year probably to exit the rebuilding stages and start competing again. Obviously, they've been trying to do a lot of work and they want to keep together as many good future pieces as they can. And it's understandable that they want to keep Jamal Adams around to not only um, help improve their team greatly uh, as he continues to improve, but also they want to keep him to mentor some of the uh, newer players that they're going to be adding in, uh, in, the, in not only this offseason, but next offseason and probably the offseason after that. So the Jets obviously are trying to keep him. I can understand why he'd be upset because it's the New York Jets. They haven't been great for, uh, for a few years now. Uh, and they are in the midst of a rebuild. Uh, but if I'm Jamal Adams and I am around a culture where they want to have me, yes, I want to go and win. Uh, and, I, and I can easily understand he wanted, him wanting to get out of that uh, culture and go to a more winning one, uh, whether that be Seattle or Cowboys or Pittsburgh or Tampa Bay. But with the Jets, they are in mid-rebuild right now. And while he does want to win now, and while I'm pretty sure he is going to have a contract uh, coming up eventually, if the Jets are pushing to have him stick around because they know he can be a valuable part of their rebuild once this finally uh, finally gets going. If I'm, if I'm Jamal Adams, I hear them. I listen to what they have them say, uh, what they have to say. And if they give him a good pitch as to why he should stay and as to why the Jets will be uh, on uh, hopefully making the playoffs in the next two or three years when he is still with the team, if they make a good pitch to him, I think he should stay personally. I mean, the Jets have been making some interesting decisions in the offseason. I think they are trying to get through this rebuild, and I think they are pushing to hopefully within the next two or three years start to win again. And I think Jamal Adams could be a part of that culture if he uh, if if they impress him with their pitch. I think – while he did request a trade, and he, uh, he, he's understandable in wanting to go to a more winning culture now, I think if he really trusts the process and if he gets a good pitch from the New York Jets, I think he should stay in New York. I would disagree because if you're Jamal Adams, if I'm Jamal Adams, and I've been on the New York Jets for the past three seasons now, I've had a stellar career, I've helped them win some games, and they clearly have not done enough to build talent around him. They're trying their best. They brought in Sam Darnold, but Sam Darnold really isn't clear the answer because he's struggling. He's going to take some time to develop. He's no patch comes or anything else. So that's clearly a big question mark there regarding the whole QB situation going on. And in my mind, Jamal Adams is a star player. He deserves to go to a winning team because he is technically, I would say, a winning player on a different team. If you put him on the Dallas Cowboys and the Seattle Seahawks or any other team, he would probably have the same amount of numbers and he'd be winning games and he'd be enjoying life because he wouldn't be losing and he wouldn't be going three and 13 or something in a season. So I think Jamal Adams, as if I technically was hypothetically Jamal Adams, I would uh, go to a different team. So I think Jamal Adams should go based on the answer that he has tried to stick it out with the team because in my mind, whenever you're a young player and you do well, like I'll give an example, the whole Jack Eichel thing. Jack Eichel is a great player. He hasn't. He's he's done well through the, his five seasons and stuff uh, with the Buffalo with with Buffalo, 
and uh, he hasn't really had any breakout seasons. But in my mind, it's kind of like if you do well at a team and the team isn't building around you as the star player, we're not saying Jamal Adams is the star player, but he's one of the star players along with Sam Darnold. And if they're not doing enough to build around him, then you need to go to another place that will do that or go join a team that is – like I, I don't want to say go join a team that's already like um, I would say like stacked or anything like that, like overpowered, like go join the Buccaneers with Tom Brady and everyone else and stuff and just kind of hop in that bandwagon. Go to a team where you can kind of make your difference and make your impact, be your own player. And I really think that the Dallas Cowboys might be the right team for him with um, being him wanting to uh, just do well and stuff and having a winning culture in Dallas. Yes, they've had some rough seasons, but honestly, I think with the talent that they have, and if they land Jamal Adams, they, I would watch them out. I would watch them out. I would watch out for them, I bet, uh, in the NFC East. So that's Yeah, I mean, thoughts. like, if, if I'm Jamal Adams, and obviously I'm, I, I understand why he wants out, and I think he should go if they can't prove to him that they won't improve in the next few years. Because if I think the Jets are going to have to give him a pitch if they really do want to keep him, they're going to have to go to him and say, okay, look, here's our plan for the next few years. Here is the type of talent we will guarantee that we can bring in within the next few years to surround you with good players. This is why you should stay. If they can impress him enough with that, then I think you should stay. Uh, should stay. But if they can't impress him or if they don't come to him with something like that, I easily understand him going uh, to another team. Saying that, I would love for him to go to the Cowboys. I think it would mean they might have to give up a bit to get him. I think, and obviously him being asked by a fan isn't really a reputable source. But, I mean, if he is trying to go to the Cowboys, that would be, I think, where he would have the most impact. A team like the Cowboys, anyways, that could use a bit more help on defense. He would be a very good piece to add to their team that is – only going up from here uh, it seems like anyways and once they sign Dak to an, uh, uh, a long-term contract after they finally got him to agree to a franchise tag I think once they finally get him under contract I think this Dallas Cowboys team will be one to watch out if they can add Jabal Adams for the foreseeable future because that now not only do you have a good one-two punch on offense in Zeke and Dak Prescott locked up for the next few years but if you can have Jamal Adams on the on the defensive side of the ball that really gets you, uh, gets you a good team that could look to do some damage on both sides of the ball going into the playoffs. And I think Dallas should be interested in him, and I hope they don't give up too much to get him. But I think that Jamal could be a good impact player if the Dallas Cowboys uh, do decide to go after him. So kind of the question I pose to you next is that does Dallas legitimately have a shot at getting him? Because in my mind, I'm kind of looking at like, kind of going through mentally in my head of what like Dallas has on the roster and who they would give up and stuff. And they might have to give up a few play, either a few draft picks or might one or two players, but Jamal Adams is a top player. So you might trade a player for another player. So you might trade a star, like not saying star receiver, but maybe a someone else on defense or on offense, maybe star players to get Jamal Adams. But in my mind, I think that if they can swing a deal properly, I think, Dallas does have a legit shot of getting him like they literally do. They have a proper shot to get him, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be, might be a little bit too much for what they're wanting to give up. So some, you know, Jerry Jones and everyone else might not want to uh, do that deal per se. What are your thoughts there? 
Okay, so the way I look at this is what would that trade look like? Okay, Dallas gets Jamal Adams, obviously. What would the Jets what do the Jets need right now in return? Well, the Jets need a lot. They need defensive help, they need offensive help, they need good young players that are coming through the system, and they would love to have more draft picks. Pretty much everything you can give them. So yeah. Dallas is gonna have to give up something, obviously, to get him that's gonna be pretty good. I think a reasonable I, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to name a price, but it's definitely going to have to be some form of high round draft pick, whether that be first, second, mm-hmm. or third in the either next year or the year after. And I think it's going to have to be one of the players that either drafted this year or last year that's looking a lot better. I think that they're going to have to get rid of, they're going to have to give up some draft picks no matter what that are high round because they need to, because the Jets are mid rebuild. They're going to be looking at as much young talent as possible. And I feel like they're going to want one of the younger players that have shown they could potentially become something, whether that be, I don't want to see it, but their draft pick this year, CD, uh, I can't remember his last name. Uh, CD lamb. CD lamb. Thank you. I don't know what I was thinking, but either CD lamb, I'm not saying they should give him up, but it's going to be a player, t- uh, a player like him that is young, has potential, and could make an impact for the Jets in the coming years that would want to play on a improving team. Uh, I don't think it will be CeeDee Lamb. I hope it's not CeeDee Lamb because I think he can be an effective receiver for the Cowboys in the future. But I, th- I think it's going to have to be a combination of one or two draft picks that are high round plus a young player that the Cowboys are going to have to get up for Jamal Adams. Whether that's too much, only time will tell, obviously. But I think Jamal Adams would be a good addition to the Cowboys and could really help them push not only for the playoffs this year, but hopefully make some noise. I would definitely agree with that. Already, that wraps up our NFL discussion regarding the Jamal Adams sweepstakes and possibly where he is going to land and possibly would the Dallas Cowboys be able to technically afford it, per se. This has been episode 41 of the On The Rise Podcast with your host, Sam and Evan. Be sure to check out our website, ontherisepodcast.ca and Instagram, at Rise Podcast. We'd like to give thanks to all our Midtown Radio listeners. Make sure to tune in next week for more great sports content.